Alison. Hi, Sarah. So last episode, we had a passionate discussion, didn't we, about the regional elections? Sure, passionate. <laughs> uh, well, they came and went yeah. and they have indeed left their mark. Yeah, yeah. And, and while we, you know, we could get into the party politics of mm. it all, we probably will. You could say that everyone took a hit in these elections because two thirds of voters didn't show up. Exactly. The winner was voter apathy. Mm -hmm. People stayed at home or they did other stuff. But in any case, now there's talk of a crisis in democracy. Here yeah, in lots of lots of hand, hand wringing. And, um, you know, that may be the case. But when you actually look at the campaign, you know, as we did last episode, mm -hmm. there wasn't much of one or at least not about any of the regional issues at stake there for these elections. Yeah, there was a lot of talk about security, mm -hmm. immigration, nationalizing sort of, it. Exactly. Not really looking at uh, what, what could change mm -hmm. via these regional elections so people couldn't be bothered to turn up they yeah. didn't feel that their vote would change much and they also objected it would seem to the focus being put on the leader of the hard right Marine Le Pen and President Emmanuel Macron as if the whole thing was just a test run for the presidentials in April next year yeah I mean it really did kind of feel like that <laughs> yeah. um, young people in particular didn't show up turnout among 18 to 25 year olds was just 10 percent yeah so as a result none of these regions changed hands and that benefited the incumbents who were the socialists because we so rarely talk about them <laughs> and in particular the center-right republicans neither macron's la reine party nor marine le pen's hard-right national rally won a single region yeah macron um his la reine candidates got just over 11 percent of the vote which was mm. kind of as expected because they really don't have much of a grassroots local presence in france yeah because they yeah their, their party is still very very new mm. uh, la reine it was also very bad news for le pen the polls had shown that she could win up to five, maybe even six of the 13 mainland regions. But after the first round, uh, the national rally came out on top in just one, and that's PACA in the south. Yeah, and so that runoff in the second round was against the Républicain candidate, who actually had joined forces with La Reine strategically in order to particularly beat them. Le Pen berated her electorate. Mm -hmm. She said that they had a duty to get out and vote, and that abstaining as a form of protest wouldn't help. Yeah, but they didn't heed her call. No one likes being berated, do they? <laughs> uh, and the other parties did what's known as the Republican Pact. So the Green candidate, who was in third place, pulled out to then lend support to the Republican, who then beat the national rally guy. Yeah, yeah. Le Pen, unsurprisingly, talked about these unnatural alliances. And I mean, you can see what she mm. means, all this political maneuvering to, to stay in place and win. But still, the question remains, why did only around 30% of national rally voters show up? And it was mainly the over 50s, mm. so not the youth and the working class who uh, the party now most appeals to. Now, it's worth remembering that Marine Le Pen took over her father's National Front Party in 2011. She's rebranded it, she renamed it National Rally, mm -hmm. and she's really put a lot of effort into trying to broaden the support base, softening the party's image, making it seem more legitimate. But all of that is a risky game. So I talked to political scientist Jean-Yves Camus, who's been studying the hard right for uh, many years now and he says Le Pen's strategy may not be working and that in fact she seems to be putting off some of her hardcore supporters. Maybe some of the voters say they do not want the uh, national rally to look like any other party because uh, what's the use of voting for a party that's similar to those of the conservative right when you know that Marine Le Pen has much less 
possibilities of coming to power than the conservative right. So maybe the party has become too soft on some issues, including immigration, for example. And uh, as a result, some of the supporters just uh, chose to stay home. Yeah, when Marine Le Pen took over the party in 2011, she wanted to rebrand it, make it less toxic, less anti-Semitic than her father's uh, National Front had been. But is it true then or not that the party has become softer or is it just an image that she's wanting to give? I think that's mostly an image because if you uh, look at the proposals that Marine Le Pen makes in her campaign for uh, president, she wants to stop immigration, just close the door to immigration. She wants a policy of law and order that's really much stricter than that of the Conservatives. She does not want to restore the death penalty, but she wants real life in prison for those who, for example, attack policemen or the military and so on. On the other hand, she does not want to leave the EU anymore. But still, she is the one who is the most aggressive against the um, policies of Brussels. So there's a difference between the Conservative right and the National Rally. And on the other hand, I know there are some people within the party who today say that Marine Le Pen needs to take a much more radical approach to the issues of identity and immigration. But that would mean, going back to the, uh, to the years of Jean-Marie Le Pen, and uh, I really believe that there is no, no room in French politics for a party that belongs to, let's say, the extreme right of the 1960s or 1970s. Can we consider the national rally as a, a party, as Marine Le Pen claims, or is it more of a movement around a family? It's a legal political party. It plays the game of democracy. Marine Le Pen doesn't say that she wants to uh, take power through any other means as in uh, the electoral process. It's uh, not totally a mainstream party. There are many reasons why, including the fact that at each and every election, you will find candidates for the national rally who on social media have posted very nasty things, bordering on anti-Semitism or plain racism. I do believe that Marine Le Pen wants to be elected and that she thinks that she is ready for leading this country. And a lot of people inside the party have been waiting for decades to really come to power, uh, get responsibilities and change French politics. They are very, very keen on uh, succeeding in 2022. Yeah, they're very keen, aren't they? But on the basis of these regional elections, it's just not happening. And then we also had this Republican pact where uh, the, the more mainstream parties came together to try and block the hard-right candidate. That's what happened in the PACA region in, in south of France. So that suggests that there is still a something in French political culture which is sort of keeping the, the national rally out or at least at bay. Yes, I have always said that maybe the destiny of the uh, Rassemblement National is to be a strong party with a strong following of, let's say, 25 to 30 percent of the vote, but without ever coming to power. 
It's seen by many people as too extreme. It's mostly a matter of a political culture. Marine Le Pen says that the party has nothing to do with what it used to be, but in the mind of many French people, there's some kind of a continuity, and uh, she will not be able to change that because that's just the history of a party. So how important is Marine Le Pen as an individual in the party and in in the the process of normalizing the party is this party really all about her it remains to be seen but i still believe that in 2022 uh, provided that we will vote in i would say normal uh, circumstances related to the pandemic i still believe that marine le pen can achieve much more than the party did uh, last sunday Because in a presidential election, you do not vote for a slate of candidates. You vote for a man or a woman who will be elected to the presidency. And Marine Le Pen is certainly more attractive than her own party. Uh, but on the other hand, she is also the one who is responsible for uh, changing the, uh, not the ideology, but at least the image of the party. And she is scapegoated by many who are not happy with the defeat that took place last Sunday. And there will probably be, uh, during the conference of the party this Sunday, some uh, grievances that will be uh, put forward by people who say that she is not fit for president. The only problem is that there is no one, at least today, who is able and willing to challenge Marine Le Pen's leadership. Descendez, y'a le feu Y'a le feu Attention, attention Sortez, y'a le feu Sortez, descendez Sarah, you know what an institution the French firefighters are, don't yeah, you? Yeah, the sapeurs-pompiers, as they're known here. You dial 18 to get them. Yeah, indeed, the fire brigade, as we now know it, came out of an event which happened 209 years ago today. All right, that's very specific. What happened then? <laughs> so it came out of a rather tragic event. On the 1st of July, 1810, Prince Schwarzenberg, who was the Austrian ambassador in Paris at the time, he gave a ball in honour of Napoleon. William Bonaparte and his wife, the Archduchess Marie-Louise of Austria. They'd got married just three months earlier. Mm, Napoleon again. Yeah, he, <laughs> he crops up a lot, doesn't yeah. he? Well, this ball was held in a temporary structure. It was set up in the gardens of the embassy in central Paris, and some 1,500 guests were invited. But a burning candle, which had been left unattended, set fire to the wall hangings. The fire spread very, very quickly. People tried to escape. There was something of a stampede. Napoleon found time to take his wife back to the Elysee Palace and then returned to take control of the rescue operations. Mm, like a hands-on emperor there. Yeah, <laughs> uh, the man in charge. But the fire was raging. Even Napoleon couldn't do much about it. Several dozen people were killed in the fire, including the ambassador's sister-in-law, Pauline de Schwarzenberg. She uh, tragically burned to death while she was trying to find her daughter. Mm. As you can imagine, all of that caused something of a scandal, but the drama was hushed up as much as possible. Mm. 
Mm, I guess it wouldn't have reflected well on, on Napoleon. No, all the more because a report testified that the fire brigade wasn't at all prepared for this kind of thing. So as a result, Napoleon decided to dismantle it. And the next year, on July the 10th, 1811, he created a special military corps to ensure security of the imperial palaces. This was the very first time that firefighting had been entrusted to the military. And then on September the 18th of that year, the corps was transformed into the Paris Fire Brigade and it got the name Sapeur Pompier. Yeah, and even today, right, the firefighters in Paris are part of the army. Mm -hmm. uh, they're professional soldiers. There are 8,500 of them, and their motto is Sauver ou Périr, Save or Perish. Uh, indeed. And in Marseille, on the Mediterranean coast, uh, the firefighters who are also professional and known as the Marseille Marine Fire Brigade. Mm. In the rest of the country, firefighting is carried out mainly by volunteers, and in total, there are nearly 250,000 of them, mainly men, but there are an increasing number of women. Mm -mm. But how much firefighting do they actually do? I mean, firefighters also do a lot of emergency medical care, right? Yeah, it turns out only 3% of their missions mm. actually involve putting out fires. Most of what they do is helping people in need. And that can be anything from traffic accidents to rescuing your cat. <laughs> I've, I've called them actually about a cat, not mine, but somebody else's. Ooh. They didn't actually show up because <laughs> the problem was solved. Okay, well, I'm happy for your cat. But in <laughs> fact, that's interesting to know because these uh, firefighters are so popular, everyone tends to turn to them for the slightest reason. Mm. And that in itself is becoming a problem now. A couple of years ago, they had to run a campaign saying, think twice before you dial uh, 18, after a woman had called them out to remove a spider from her bathroom. <laughs> Du gluten, ce monde est sans foi ni loi Je dis ça, je dis rien, mais je le dis quand même Les brunes sont quinoa, quinoa Je dis ça, je dis rien, mais je le dis quand même Les brunes sont quinoa, quinoa, quinoa So Alison, a food-related question here for you, okay? Mm -hmm. How often do you eat quinoa? Ah, yes, actually... Huh. Seriously, quite often. Okay. About once a week. Yeah, right. we like it. We're fans. Oh, so it's like a staple <laughs> food for you. Well, yeah. as a reminder, right, this is a seed. It's cooked and eaten like a grain. It's chewy, mm. has like a nutty flavor. It's high in protein. Yeah, my favorite is the is the red one, mm. by the way. It's grown in South America, isn't it? Yeah, Most yeah. It. Well, originally, right? So it's a sacred seed for the Incas. It's mm. been grown for, for hundreds of years um, in the Andean region. So Peru, Bolivia, Chile. But um, the world, as it were, kind of discovered quinoa in the early 2000s. And so demand globally went through the roof and it put a huge strain on producers. Often they were very small producers, delocalized. So farmers around the world started thinking about how they could grow this crop. But it's quite finicky. Um, France, it turns out, developed its own quinoa production. Um, it remains a niche product, even if it's growing in popularity. Today, France is Europe's largest producer of quinoa, and most of that is grown in the Anjou, or Maine-et-Loire region in the west of the country. Mm. And all that thanks to one guy from Tennessee. Right, so here we go. This is quinoa. This is quinoa. Jason Abbott pushes his way through stalks of chest-high plants. Many of them are flowering with clusters of tiny yellow or pink buds. Each flower makes one grain. And you can see the grain inside the, inside the flower. And that's, that's it. That's the quinoa grain right there. 
These plants are on Abbott's farm in Longueuil-Jumel, in the heart of the Maine-et-Loire region, which is also known as the Anjou in the west of France. I'm afraid it's going to be a little wet. As you can hear from his accent, Abbott isn't French. He's originally from Tennessee in the United States. He trained as an economist and worked for the U.S. Food and Agriculture Department in Washington before moving here with his French wife in 2004. For over a decade, he's been crossing quinoa plants on his experimental seed farm and replanting the results each year to see if he can find the perfect variety to grow here in this part of France, whose wet winters and hot summers are different from the seed's native Andes. We can you know, take, a, take a branch and, and look at all the, how mature the seeds are in here. We're here at the end of June, right before harvest time. Abbott crushes some of the flowers in his hand, and a small pile of seeds come out. Uh, there's a couple of green seeds still in here. Once the seeds are, are all white, uh, it's reached a certain level of maturity, we could go ahead and take the plant. There are nearly 400 different plots here, each with a different type or line of quinoa being grown from seeds harvested from plants from the previous year. Amongst the thousands of individual plants, Abbott is looking for the 500 most hardy each plot is a little bit different. For example here, I mean, you can definitely see the difference between these two already in color, right? It's work spread out over years, an obsessive work of observation and noting variations. You like to spend long, long periods just tracking a few insects, right? Why is he so obsessed? His daughter, born soon after he moved to France, was diagnosed with celiac disease, an autoimmune disorder in which the body is intolerant to gluten, a protein found in wheat and other grains. A nutritionist introduced the family to alternatives to wheat. So we started eating these alternative grains like buckwheat and, and quinoa and millet and the one that kept coming back much more often was quinoa. It was just so easy to prepare. It had a really interesting texture. It has a mild flavor so that it goes with all types of sauces. He and his family were surprised that they could only find quinoa in specialty organic shops. Why wasn't it as ubiquitous as rice? The answer to that question was that the production at the time in South America was very unstable and the prices likewise were very unstable and so the availability uh, here in France was also unstable. When he arrived in France, Abbott had gone to work for Villemorin, a major French seed company, and he'd started his farm down the road to test products for the company. He decided to leave the company with his wife focus on quinoa. We thought, well, we could uh, create a reliable supply uh, or potentially, or at least Creating a reliable supply would be an interesting challenge. A challenge that would take years of crossing and planting and recrossing and replanting. So before doing that, he needed to make sure there'd be a market for the product at the end. Once he found potential buyers, he went to farmers, those who would actually grow the crop. The agriculture cooperative in the region today brings together some 300 grain farmers. They were actively looking for other specialty crops. These farmers are quite uh, sensitive to the, you know, the, the environmental impacts and uh, the main, main thing is uh, rotation and diversity on the farm. Crop rotation is a way of reducing pests and avoiding soil depletion, an environmentally friendly approach to managing crops. The farmers liked the idea of quinoa, even if it was a strange seed being presented to them by an American engineer. 
Abbott says he faced little resistance from farmers who are used to working with seed companies. You know, the flowers seed also, they didn't know about it. They had a few tips on how to grow it, and, you know, they, uh, they went with it. Abbott got to work to find the best variety. He secured a license for a quinoa variety developed at the Wageningen University in the Netherlands in the 1980s and 90s, which crossed strains from Ecuador and Chile. Even if it wasn't the best, it wasn't exactly what we needed, it allowed us to get started. Quinoa is light sensitive and usually makes seeds, the part of the plant that you eat, when days get shorter. Most of the Andes are at a lower latitude than France, so the days there get shorter earlier in the summer. When the days start to get short here, we get a lot of rain, so we can't harvest it. The Dutch university botanist managed to reduce the light sensitivity issue and a few other problems. But Abbott still had to find a variety that would thrive in France. In the field, red insects are crawling on some of the flowers. The French are called telephores, and I believe they're called soldier beetles in English. And they eat aphids, and they eat uh, some of the other pests that we have. So they're good guys, like ladybugs. Abbott has an assistant, an intern from the local agriculture school, who's walking through the plants with a paper on a clipboard, noting the development of the flowers, presence of insects, holes in the leaves. There's a couple of plots that there's no more leaves. The bugs have completely destroyed them. That's great to see, because you can say, okay, you're out. Unlike a traditional farmer, Abbott is seeking out problems. I'm really disappointed right now. We don't have much uh, logic. We don't have many plants that are falling over. It's really disappointing because I want to be able to see which ones are stronger than the others, right? So I've got to have some weak in order to be able to identify the strong. He's still working on finding the ideal variety. The cooperative is growing seven of them in the area currently. They're given names when they go from being lines on the experimental farm to varieties that get planted on a large scale. They're called fantasy names. Duchess is one that we use a lot of. I chose that name in order as a, uh, as a thank you to the Dutch who started it. One of our main ones is called Bastille. It's nice in French. But it's named in, in memory of uh, the son of one of our farmers, who was Baptiste, who uh, passed away uh, prematurely. Usually we try to find names that have a, you know, first off they just sound good, but then that they've also got kind of a backstory for the few initiated that know. Quinoa remains a niche product in France, often the vegetarian option on a restaurant's menu, though in some grocery stores you can find it on the shelf alongside rice and couscous. Abbott's wife, Maud, works with the bulk stores and restaurants to convince them to adopt the seed. And she works on developing products like puffed quinoa cereal to convince industrials to take it on. The Abbots are banking on the consistency of the product and the prices to draw in more buyers. And in the meantime, Jason Abbott continues to try to refine his seeds. I don't think we'll ever find like one perfect variety. I think there'll always be some improvement to be done. But at the same time, I mean, this is the same, same process that's been done around the world for thousands of years. And uh, yeah, it's a, you know, it does, it does take some time. So we've come to the end of the show and the end of the season, so to speak. Yeah, we're taking a break for a couple of months mm. uh, during the summer. Vive la France. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I'll be heading off to Perigueux, and you? Uh, in the Aveyron region, so, okay, so going around outside of Paris. Yeah, <laughs> interesting. It'll be interesting to see what we can find and maybe tell you all about it when we come back in September uh, with uh, new interviews and reports from all over France. Yeah, yeah, I wonder if we'll still be talking about COVID. 
I have a feeling we will. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. So if you like what you've been hearing, if you have questions or you know even requests for future episodes, mm. let us know. You can send us an email, spotlight.france at rfi.fr. Uh, Spotlight on France is a production of Radio France International and you can find previous episodes, uh, 58 of them, mm-hmm. uh, on rfienglish.com or wherever you get your podcasts. We're also on Instagram. Find us. It's Spotlight on France. Have a great summer. And you too, Sarah. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.